My guest today is an interesting character. He's not interested in making his own system. He thinks that Dungeons & Dragons isn't that bad. And he just wants to make good content for it. And he wants to show how to do it right. That's kind of the impression I got from him. And as you'll hear, we talk about it. We talk about the ups and downs of uh, working on an existing system versus trying to make your own. And I have to say, I actually learned quite a bit from talking to him, he has a method of approaching the GM side of things and planning a campaign, working on a module, that kind of stuff. His mentality is applicable to pretty much all RPG design. And so even though he's not working on, you know, a ground up reinvented system, he's got some really good insight as a very experienced GM uh, or DM. And I've liked talking to him on gdg and and i I like talking to him here i'm sure you're going to love the discussion so i'm just going to let the discussion speak for itself uh make sure that you do check the links in the description for where you can find this because he's actually releasing something he's not just talking about it and uh, from what i understand between the time of the recording of this podcast and and the release of it now uh, he's actually gotten quite a bit of positive feedback on what he made, and so uh, we won't be able to talk about that in the podcast because this was recorded before, but the good news is somebody out there is appreciating what he's doing, and that's really encouraging for all of us at GDG who are trying to put stuff out, and that means you should go and talk to him. You should find him on GDG, find out what he did, how he did it, and you know I'm sure he can give you some good advice. So that's all I want to say before the discussion Enjoy, and uh, keep listening. All right, so we're here with Oswald, who you might know from GDG as Algol, and he's going to talk to us about the uh, D&D adventure he's working on and his game design philosophy and GDG and the good stuff we like to try to get into here. Uh, why don't you say hi and tell us about your your project you're working on? All right. How's it going? My name's Oswald. I've been GMing and running games for a pretty decently long time. I want to say about gosh, about like uh, see, yeah, like almost 18 years. Almost about to be 20 years into wow. it. Yeah. Oh no, just because I started young with uh, I bought the uh. I actually bought the third edition basic set in 01 when I was 12. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah. And I've ran a lot of different games since then. You know, things like uh, I had a whole couple year phase where I was big into Call of Cthulhu and different editions of D&D, Shadowrun, stuff like that. And But I don't know, I always kind of return to this sort of dungeon crawl thing. For a couple reasons. For one, it's very easy to design for, I feel. And that's why it's popular, I think, part of it. And then... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because there's a lot of reasons why it's sort of like... You can autopilot a good dungeon design. (laughs) (laughs) You really can. But one thing, I guess, about my product is... It's written for 5th edition, which... 
is a bit new to me because I ran a couple year campaign of that, but most of my background with designing, you know, more seriously is it for basic D&D and Lamentations and that sort of OSR sphere of games. Oh, interesting. So yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, well, uh, I'm curious at least, maybe a lot of other people already know this, but I, I'm not familiar with exactly how much has changed from the early to the late D&D. So what would you say the, the, the differences are? I would say the major difference is the gameplay loop is much more explicit in older D&D because there's a lot of things that have de-emphasized this over the years. But there's a sort of relationship between tracking time in a dungeon or a wilderness adventure, resource use, handling random encounters. See, everything kind of loops in a very tight, tightly packaged game. Hmm. And it is very gameplayist, you know, because it's, there, I would say really the core idea with it is there is no, they don't give a shit about story. That's just not a thing that's in it really. It's all about you go into an area, and just try and get loot and gold, and what happens is the story. Yeah, that's what my impression of, of old D&D basically was, and I actually hated D&D um, <laughs> when I looked into it because I got the sense that it was a system that looked, if you looked at the, the, the mechanics and the gameplay, it looked like it was supposed to be sort of this grindy, you know, dungeon crawl thing, but if you looked at the advice and the material on it, it all looked like it was supposed to be this really sort of uh, widespread storytelling, uh, you know, adventure lifestyle simulator, and it just yeah. didn't match up. And I was like, well, why is that? And then I eventually went back to, you know, the, basically OSR idea <laughs> and some other people promoting the idea first edition and I'm like, well, why would anybody go back editions, you know, or to earlier stuff? And then I, I realized basically that it was just more honest and sort of straightforward with what it was trying to accomplish. And I actually respected that. Yeah. Cause it's, I think for what it is for, you know, in ex, cause it's really people say dungeon crawling, but it's really exploration is a better word. You know, just that's the core of it is exploring an area, managing your resources, all of that, and managing danger. You know, because that's where a lot of the role playing element enters into it. That things like, say, you find a monster in the dungeon, fighting the monster is your worst possible option because that burns resources. That means you might die. You want to talk it out, surely. Right. You know, make alliances, things like that. That's how you survive in this grimy dungeon crawl environment. Right. So when you're designing as a GM a campaign uh, in an older edition, you'd want to emphasize these sort of hard choices that people have to make, I assume. Yeah, you'd want to emphasize that and sort of a... Because you're not using a story-based structure, you want to have a lot of stress put onto a very dynamic environment that can almost run itself. So things like you want NPCs to have different motivations, factions at cross ends, because that means players can play off the different factions. That there's no opportunity for them to go in and say, ally, you know, your goblins or whatever. And now everything's changed. They can throw things out of equilibrium. Huh. So your current thing, um, 
You told me it was called Mines, Claws, and Princesses? Yeah, and it's this one is a bit more modern in its design, I would say. So what's the what's the difference there? Probably the biggest difference is honestly genre, probably. Because I'm one of those people, as a kid, when I got into D&D, it was sort of like, everything kind of implies this, this big high fantasy adventure, that you're going to be heroes and all of this. And I feel like most people don't play that way because the adventure design isn't designed, isn't made to support that. You know, think about, you know, you're not going to feel like a hero if you're doing something for 300 gold from a random guy. You're a mercenary. Right. And that's why I think people who play a lot of D&D tend towards this kind of sword and sorcery, you know, almost amoral style over time. Huh. Because the context and the the framework for what the adventure is about is not um, structured properly, or it's not structured to motivate sort of a selfless heroism. It's always self-interest, right? Yeah, it's always self-interest. And that's something, you know, I've kind of embraced the murder hobo over the years. Now, I think you can have a really fun game with it, but then that comes into the issue for me when I start having newer players of that's not what they're looking for from a fantasy game. And so in 5th edition, though, there's no gold for XP rules. There's, you know, really in the combat, the XP for combat is kind of superfluous. Most people in my experience don't run it that way. So I don't think there's anything in the rules that really stresses that amoral Conan's sorted sorcery style. It's more a matter of the adventure design doesn't know how to motivate people into that heroic mode. Well, and that's one of the things that I am puzzled by when I listen to, because I've looked up a lot of, even though I haven't played D&D a lot, I've, I've listened to a lot of dungeon masters trying to give advice to other dungeon masters and, it feels to me like the advice they give is usually like how much, what percent of the, the dungeon master's guide to just disregard and how much to just basically use the mechanics and come up with your own strategy for motivating your players and getting them, um, hooked and keeping them on track and this kind of stuff. And I'm wondering oh, yeah. as, you know, somebody who's obviously a veteran dungeon master <laughs> who likes the system and um, is even designing your own adventure for it and you want to put it out as a product. How do you reconcile that? Because in my mind, if I had, if I had a system where I said, well, just ignore 40% of it and it'll be fine, that would mean that's a really bad system. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're actually kind of right on it with, uh, this is something I think where it fails a lot of times is more in the advice for, uh, Actual adventure design, like, cause the mechanics have always been, D&D's always been very conservative in its rule system design. And so, it's an advantage of it being very conservative that, while it's not innovative in any way, usually the ideas are very, you know, they're, they're right, they're like an AK-47. It's not the best gun, but it's durable and it's rugged and you can apply it to a lot of different things. Right. It's not going to suddenly not be able to handle a situation, even if it, it's not optimized for some a lot of different situations. Yeah. 
But I think when I think about what it's optimized for, that's part of why people like OSR stuff, because it's very much now you understand why the core ideas are in there. Yeah, that's the sense I got when I was looking into that. But um, what made you want to make this particular, you know, module slash adventure? Well, I think a part of it is because, a big part of it is because I ran a couple-year campaign of 5th edition, and I really did like the system, but the adventures, a lot of them are kind of dog shit, I'll be honest. (laughs) 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 That really is a big part of it, because I'm just like, I can't be the only guy who thinks these adventures are dog shit, and if I want good 5th edition adventures, I can just make them myself. <laughs> well, shouldn't there be, like, like D&D 5th edition is, like, extremely popular. It's like the resurgence of the whole game. So <laughs> wouldn't you think that there'd be tons of great adventures people are already putting out? Like, how, Or are you talking just about the source material that's included, or what? Um, I'm kind of including third party as well. Because I think a big thing is whenever you have a system, the official adventures are going to inform the game design on third-party materials. So no, you know, and that's what I've noticed, is none of the third-party material I've seen strays very far from the general idea that Wizards of the Coast does. Oh, right, okay. Which is a, yeah. And another big thing with it is, I think all the hype is in DMs Guild, but DMs go, there's a reason I don't want to publish for it. Because it does a few things that are really wonky to me. Well, you'll have to explain that to me because I, I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with that scene. Well, the one big thing with it is because of the culture of it, there's a sort of, cause I've noticed in fifth edition, it bothers me how when I first got into it with the play test, there was all this homebrew material, all this. Well, now in the culture of that scene, there's a, a sort of resistance to homebrew or doing really creative things with the system or, you know, with your content. And and, and what is in DM's Guild, a big thing that dampens it is everything pretty much has to be set in Forgotten Realms. Oh, right. So yeah, I, I forgot about the, yeah. the fact that there even were supposed to be other realms that the D&D could take place in. Yeah, and I think that dampens creativity, because I think one reason a lot of people have been going to this OSR type thing is because, you know, a lot of people I meet, they're not even into those systems, but the adventures are more creative genre-wise. You know, they'll take influences from fantasy that just isn't as big in mainstream D&D. They'll say, you know, they'll just, like, be more creative as far as setting material goes. Yeah, and presumably that's what yours is doing, is is stepping outside the box a little bit more and trying to do something um, yeah. innovative. Because mine, I'd say, like, I really want this to feel like extremely D&D, but sort of, you know, because there's no main element in it that's not already a common thing in it. There are orcs, dwarves, all of that. But I want to step outside of that normal flavor for them. You know, kind of, you know, because take influences from me, you know, I'm a child of 70s and 80s high fantasy. It's sort of what I grew up on. And a lot of that, you know, not so much, you know, 70s comic book Conan, things like that. You know, really try and bring a broader, 
you know, fantasy genre influence to it. Huh. This is something I feel with the Forgotten Realm stuff is so narrow in its influences. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, but when I read, I, I do have an edition of the, or I do have a copy of the fifth edition <laughs> Dungeon Master's Guide. And when I was reading it, um, you know, for research purposes, I wanted to find out how they try to tell Dungeon Masters how to build adventures. And they have tons of, of, you know, advice in there and, uh, some of it definitely says, you know, go make a mysterious, you know, mm-hmm. basically Cthulhu style, uh, horror mystery thing. And then the next page will be like a different kind of genre that they're basically going for. But, uh, in my mind, yeah. that would mean, okay, well, go crazy with it. You know, as long as, as long as you're using the ingredients they give you in the, the monster manual and the whatever, mm-hmm. like, I, I'm not really seeing a big difference in, what one setting emphasizes versus another? Isn't it all wide open as far as what you want to do with your well, setting? That, and that's sort of why I've been dumbfounded with my research in a lot of this fifth edition third party and the mainline adventures is how just kind of bland it is flavor wise. It's because to me, you know, fifth edition is very easy just to slot in whatever you want, go crazy with it. And that's any RPG really. You can go kind of crazy with. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably some that, that try to restrain it more, but in the end, it's in the hands of whoever's running the game. They can modify it. Yeah. And do what they want with. But I did. That's why this- home games are always crazier, you know, always have more interesting content. Yeah. Experience. But I, I mean, in, in this case, I would. I guess I, I can understand where you're coming from then because just me reading it, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, at, at the very least, they're trying to emphasize that you can do anything you want with this setting and, and get crazy with it. And then if I found out that all of the adventurous people were making were sort of this straightforward, predictable style, that that would be a disappointment. Oh, yeah. And it's something, I don't know, it really kind of disappoints me because it's that sort of, they're all in that mode of that generic D&D fantasy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, cause no. for me, I guess for me, I've just never been a big fan of that style, generic D&D fantasy, because I read a lot of fantasy. I watch a lot of fantasy films, you know, things from the 30s, 70s, 80s, you know, some modern stuff. And to me, it's all, you know, like, say, where's the sense of wonder to it? You know, if I go into a dungeon, I don't want to know already in the tropes of all the monsters. I want them to be something new, something interesting, mysterious. Well, how much is that? I'm wondering, because I I don't know so far much about the particulars of your your (laughs) project that you're working on, but how much of that would be stuff like um, high-level changes to the way an existing race or something operates versus... You know, just trying to put in nice touches and smaller details and things that would um, give it a different flavor, but not really change the the core behaviors and mechanics and stuff that you would expect. Well, I think with it, a lot of it is sort of in the particular flavors. Because a big thing I've tried to do with this is say things like, uh, you know, I'd say there's a dragon in it, and the dragon uses blackbirds as spies, and they're just talking birds. And that's a little detail. You know, it has a big macro effect on the adventure. Right. But it's not so much strange as much as it is. 
you know, it's something you would see in a lot of fantasy and in a lot of older fantasy or if you're into folk, folk tales, but it's not a thing you see much in D&D. And I really think it's in the little details where a lot of adventures fail. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that because I think, uh, especially people who want to be creative, they end up feeling that freedom to just change stuff and go wild with it. And they make a couple of big changes or mm-hmm. something that they think is a big change. And then they neglect to go in and sort of polish it in a way and put in small things. And, uh, cause I, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't run a lot of games myself, uh, but <laughs> players tend to get a lot more invested in details than they do in big concepts. Right. Oh Yeah. And it's sort of, because I think the thing about the little details is, now a lot of times it'll be, say, you go in a room and it's like four orcs, you know, just sitting around. But if you have a little detail, like, they're rubbing dirt on their skin to wipe off sweat. Now you have a little detail about them, shows that they're, like, primitive, you know, but have some level of hygiene. And it's necessarily very primitive peasant hygiene. You know, it adds some flavor. It adds something to kind of hook on to you with that action. Huh. So, you know, to me, what about the uh, the main story of your adventure? You want to explain that? Why is it called Mines, Claws, and Princesses? Um, that's sort of a general. I don't know. Now it's sort of like I was thinking, what are general things in the adventure? Because the sort of introduction of it is you're immediately post a monster attack on a village. And with it, I was wanting to kind of have an introduction that really encourages players to get into that heroic mode. Right. So what is the whole general initial hook is there's a wedding that's been sacked by monsters, raided, and there's the chieftain immediately calling, you're the only people here who can save the princess. Oh, no, I went trophy with it. With this, I just wanted to do a sort of Fresh take, do well on the details, these very classic ideas. Right, yeah, that sounds about as classic as you can get. There's a crisis, and, <laughs> and you're the ones that are available. Yeah, and then some thinking, that's a general heroic hook, but then you have to get players psychologically motivated. And this is where a lot of things fall down. They don't think about the psychology of it. So, you're in that immediate chaos... And I used what's called a chaos bottle. Something I kind of stole in the concept from a, uh, from another game, uh, Deep Carbon Observatory. Hmm. Where, so say, in a chaos bottle, you'll have two or three events that are just happening at once, at the same time. And the players can really only handle one or two, so you have an immediate choice on what event to handle. And each of them is a crisis, someone in danger, something like that. Right. And any time they handle one event, suddenly three more events happen at once. Oh, I see. So you can just sort of uh, keep adding pressure and making them sort of make these tougher choices. Yeah, and that's the idea, to get them in that mode of making really tough choices where they have to help people is an initial thing with it, you know. Would that then, also have the effect of basically training them or conditioning them to have that sort of response where they can make instinctive, heroic decisions. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking with it would be the idea, because with each one, they have to make an an instinctive, hard decision, 
because it's happening right now, and have to make it fast. They can't hesitate. It's, and it also sort of it gives that atmosphere of just total chaos because the village has just been attacked. It's, yeah, there's, there's something nice about um, starting people off in something that's very familiar, but obviously the, like you said, the details actually are going to be what changes the way people think about everything and and gets them invested. Mm-hmm. So what are some examples? I don't know how much you want to... Oh, yeah, I can it, tell but, you some examples might be, uh, say one of them, the groom is dead, and his uncle is a thane of another tribe. He's accusing the villagers of weakness. So if you were so weak, my nephew died. And just like a lynching is about to start if the players don't intervene. And this is contrasted with another NPC. His family just died. He's drenched in blood and he's walking to a cliff. You know, he's going to die if you don't stop him. Right. He's just sort of, you know, walking with that thousand yard stare. And And this is all happening basically at the same time. Yeah, and this is all happening at once, at the same time. And with it, I want to have each of them as a named NPC, because if you don't intervene, they're not available in the rest of the adventure. Huh. Yeah, and a lot of them will have, like, various resources they can help players with, and this alters their playthrough. And do you do anything for, like, the character creation aspect? Do you have limitations or suggestions or anything on on what people make or is that still wide open and you just happen to be in this town and you don't have a a thread connecting the players together in that sense i was kind of initially thinking of doing a uh a sort of stripped down version of what what's it called uh over in the garden wall does but what they do is you have a shared character creation that makes all players from one village but I decided not to do that because I wanted the introduction to be very rapid fire, you know, because it's supposed to play quick, supposed to be rapid fire, lots of chaos. I didn't want to bog it down on the reading level. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's actually a, probably an important consideration. If people buy this, then they'll maybe just want to use it like the next day in their thing and not actually uh, have to do a lot of prep for it. Yeah, because that's what my what it came down to. I felt like in a home game, I would do that, and you know, I think it'd work out well. But it'd just be a lot of prep, a lot more prep work. You know, it'd make it less accessible to the consumer. Is it supposed to be for like? Is there, I'm guessing there's like a level suggested level. Is this like for totally new character? You make a new character and you get into it, or could you um, throw this in sort of like anywhere? And it still works. I would say it's meant for about level two to four, so they've gone on an adventure, maybe two if you do shorter ones. Which, because I have sort of the initial hook, and then I have a list of four different, you know, optional hooks if that doesn't work for you. Just to make it easier to work into a campaign. I see. And sort of. Because my initial idea would be, essentially, you somehow know the chieftain and got invited to the wedding, and then this great disaster happens. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a an invite to something really nice wouldn't be an invite to something really nice in D&D without <laughs> everything going horribly wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then, uh... And one in of, it, oh, go ahead. And in it, one of the ideas I had with it was throughout this chaos funnel you have 
and you know, an old lady who tries to convince the players to give up the quest, to just stay, you know, we need people to help out here. You can't just run off into the dungeon and die. My idea is that she does that three times. And I did that because I found a good technique for getting players interested. Say you have a wagon train that's been attacked. If they just come up and the players, we need help, heroes, they're going to ignore it. If they say, there's dead bodies around there, just like, this is none of your concern, move around. And that guarded because a group of armed strangers just approached. Now the players are interested. <laughs> Classic. It's no reverse psychology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the barrier is always more interested than the door in some way. <laughs> um, from a, that, that kind of reminds me, um, of something that, uh, you said you wanted to kind of touch on, which was the idea of the adventure design versus the system design. Um, it yeah. sounds like, from from what I'm gathering, it sounds like you're a lot more interested in just sort of these fundamentals of how to uh, motivate and keep players engaged, not in trying to reinvent the wheel and get uh, different takes on the fundamentals and, and assume that that's going to solve the problem for you. It's kind of like these these challenges of storytelling and keeping players engaged is more important to you. Yeah, because... To me, I feel like, uh, unless you're doing something like extremely radically new with your system, then say the way armor works is not going to radically affect the adventure. Right. You know, like it's sort of, uh, I guess to me, I feel like, uh, like if you know where to look and you understand your taste and your players, there is a wealth of good system design out there. It's, you know, there's sort of, if you understand that, it's not hard to have a decent functional system. Well, I'm curious because one of the things I, my sort of working theory on, uh, on dungeon masters is that they've become so accustomed to, uh, sort of going with the flow and making anything work that they sort of over time lose an appreciation of how much small system changes can actually improve an experience or, or change it in some ways, do you think there is, you know, does it really I mean, not matter what the system, how the system I handles think, it, or is it... I think there is truth that the system matters, but I feel like uh, with the system, it's sort of that old thing of uh, a shitty GM will make a good game shitty, and a good GM can make a shitty game, you know, good. Yeah. It's sort of... And to me, I think, like, uh, really the adventure design is to me almost more important than your system design. Because adventure design impacts play in a much more direct, bigger way than system design. This is barring, this is of course, if you're doing that very conservative D&D style design. You know, if you make really huge changes, you can get a very different play experience. Yeah, because I'm thinking, like, for example, one thing I've heard people complain about D&D is that the social mechanics are basically non-existent or very, you know, reductionist. And I'm thinking in these situations, like, for example, you're saying there's, a, you know, somebody's trying to convince you not to go on the adventure or you need to convince somebody else to help you or something like that. You know, if you introduce a system, a subsystem that handles that in a different way, those little changes, or like you were saying, old uh, classic D&D 
has a lot of resource management, um, that as soon as you introduce mm-hmm. a gameplay element like that, don't players start to bend all of their thoughts towards how to optimize those systems? So in a way, I wouldn't would that... Say, I would say they do, but your adventure design needs to take advantage of those systems, if that makes sense. Like, uh, like if you're doing... If you have, say, the same dungeon for 5th edition and 1st edition D&D, it'll play very similar, but an adventure that's optimized for one of those two editions will be very different. It will have a very different gameplay style. I see. So you get more of a... The adventure still is going to be the the meat, even if the bones are different, or <laughs> I guess you could say... Yeah, the, I feel like... In the system, it does alter things, and instead of like altering the social mechanics for it would be a very big change. Because I feel like a lot of people complain about the lack of social mechanics. Well, for people who run a lot of D&D, that's actually a feature, isn't that there aren't a whole lot of heavy social mechanics. Huh. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, you're on GDG like I am, and obviously people are always looking for these sort of uh, mechanical and system solutions to these this underwhelming feeling that happens when you're having a lot of interactions with NPCs or whatever, and it all ends up feeling the same, or it feels interchangeable or whatever. And they're they're looking for the system to solve that problem by having a a mechanic or a, a way to roll dice or something that's going to spice it up. But and I feel like if if it's a lot, most problems with that can really be solved by your design and your running at the table. Yeah. Is the thing. You know, like, no system is going to give you good NPCs. You just have to kind of get good. <laughs> See, now, man, I find that so interesting. You're the, you're the first guy that's really, like, gone to bat for defending the, the D&D <laughs> approach. And I, a, a, on one hand, I totally agree. That you can't let this, you can't let the system solve things that you as a guy running the system, um, need to step up and, and do your part because it's a tool set and you need to get good at using those tools if you want to make something good. You, the tools themselves will never make a good story. But at the same time, I think if you had better tools, you could make better stories. Hmm. Like, I would say, that That is pretty true. I mean, as far as if we're talking about social mechanics, you know, in the context of sort of D&D, which really includes a lot of games, because, you know, most mainstream game design has about that level of social Yeah. It's not a... Uh, I feel like you can, you can have better social mechanics, but a lot of people who make new ones, they miss what people like about not having social mechanics. Because huh. I think, you know, and that's sort of that thing a lot of people like just, you just straight up talk to the NPC without really rolling a whole lot is very accessible. It's straightforward how it works. Right. But, I mean, when you do have a situation where somebody wants to manipulate or abuse mm-hmm. or get something out of an NPC, I mean, your options in D&D are pretty... Well, mind controlling them. Yeah, mind controlling them with diplomacy. It's not a good option, but... But I feel like I haven't, it's sort of, it's like democracy. I haven't seen many systems that I think work better than that. 
Because then they'll bring in, <laughs> they'll solve the issues D&D has, but then bring their own unique issues. <laughs> I think that's, that's a, that's a hilariously interesting take on that is the idea of, well, you know, when you actually put it into practice, which a lot of these theory crafters like myself, I haven't <laughs> actually run my system with people and had millions of people playing it and testing it over decades. You know, obviously you can say it's tried and true and that's, that, that is going to be true because people do use it and make it work. Um, I'm kind I mean, of. Oh, go ahead. It's sort of like yeah, you can find the issues with it, and it does have a lot of issues. Like you know, skill checks is mind control is a very classic issue everyone has pointed out. But most, I've, I haven't seen a fix that didn't bring in new problems. <laughs> Let me ask you this then, because this is sort of a realization I had when I was working on my own system and I really wanted to get in depth with social mechanics and social systems. And I ended up burning myself out because of exactly what you're saying. I, every time I would make a change, I would just either realize that people could abuse it in an even weirder way, or it was going to interfere with sort of the straightforward, um, talk to an NPC and, and just get, you know, resolve it without the system needing to be there that much. Um, but one of the things that I basically realized was that the, the, what would you say, the target number, um, like to me, I, I think if I was going to run D and D as a, as a dungeon master, that would basically have to be my, my control mechanism. That's your, your, uh, dial that you can change. And I don't, I've never seen people do that in a really interesting way. And I don't know how much the, the game gives you good advice on how difficult to make yeah. it to convince somebody of something. Like if you want to use diplomacy to get somebody to do something retarded that they would never do, like shouldn't the DC be extremely high and therefore, you know, it's basically impossible? Like what is your sense of oh, that? Part of the issue is, is controlling the DC, you know, for as sort of, you know, because that is how the system's meant to work. You control in the DC to provide a sense of, you know, realism, let it not get too crazy. The issue I see is that can become very subjective on the DM's part. And it's a very abusable mechanic that the DM can sort of say, you know, oh, you want to be friends with this guy? Well, I didn't plan for that, so the DC's 90. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, wouldn't, shouldn't the... I mean, maybe this is a fundamental misconception of mine, but shouldn't the the setting logic and the actual situational logic override anybody else's concerns? Like, there's just a, it's just if you look at it logically, this NPC would never be your friend. Yeah. Or you'd have to have like a really, really good pitch as a player, because obviously your character um, has such and such skills, but the player still has to be able to come up with some sort of logic for why that would work. I think I would probably still be like, yeah, no, the DC is extremely high because, um, it's just a, it just doesn't make sense why he would be friends with you. Or do you, do you prioritize just the general player happiness and experience over those Um, considerations and you just want to roll with whatever they're going to kind of do? I would say I generally, uh, 
I would say I agree with you on you want to base it in the setting logic, you know, how the NPC works and be very neutral with it, with how you run. And that, uh, part of sort of the issue I see now is you have that very neutral thing and whatnot, but also comes down to a matter of player trust. Because the players have to trust that you're being neutral, if that makes sense. And this is sort of an out of game type thing, I think doesn't get as much attention as it needs. That's why I advocate, you know, you don't fudge rolls, roll in the open whenever you can, because the players will buy in more into the fiction of the world, in the idea that it's a neutral, you know, just everything is running logically if they trust you. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, the the relationship at the table is something that is is severely overlooked by almost all system rules. I mean, there's lots of advice out there, and you can say that you, sh- you shouldn't have to go to the system rules to find out that stuff. There's just sort of a cultural uh, wealth of collective wisdom out oh, there yeah. that people can go to. Now, that's, that's basically why what like, TG a, is built on. I mean, That's why I really massively disagree with the idea of, you know, well, you're going to fudge a role, you know, to keep the game going and keep it fun. Because I think players always figure out when you're fudging roles. And if you need to fudge a role at that point, either your GMing style, your adventure design, or in the system itself is fucked up. If you feel like you have to change what a dice roll. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I've seen instances where just the, the broken nature of D&D logic sometimes then yeah, you trust the GM because the GM is running things, you know, honestly and transparently, but you end up basically having strange situations where nobody's satisfied because the players were expecting oh, yeah. one thing, the, the, the GM was expecting another thing, and the the system ended up making a third option that nobody wanted or something like that. Like it's yeah. a it's a strange uh it's a strange like you can't negotiate the results properly when you're doing everything transparently, like the free form sort of, uh, the idea of free form being sort of this ideal, not that I'm saying that that's the case, but there's this idea that the free form adventure would be the, the best thing ever where you, you don't need to roll dice and everybody just sort of negotiates and agrees on what should happen next and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that leads to obviously just butting heads, you need to have a, a neutral arbitrator like dice and system. Oh, yeah. um, but on the other hand, if you had the system sort of making these wonky decisions for you at ki- critical moments, is that not a problem, or do you somehow find just ways to get around that by oh. just not ca- not calling for a check or not calling for a dice roll or something like that? Because it's one really- way. One way I found to sort of get around it is uh, sort of almost. Hit up to random chance your own personal DM decisions. So things like, uh, you might say, you know, you hear a rumor that there's something off in the mountains and you just made this up on the spot. Instead of deciding for yourself, roll a d6 to determine if that's real in your setting. So, you know, an, a, a failed roll would mean that it's not actually true, it's just a rumor? Yeah, and sort of like, Say things like you might, uh, you know, you can give a last chance roll. You never want to GM fiat, I feel, you know, 
things that are really important. Like, say, if a player is dying or whatnot, you can say, uh, and they really shouldn't be dead, you can say, all right, if you guys can get to him within half a round, within one action, and roll a four on a D8, then I'll let you save him. Because then you're pitting it in the hands of the dice and not in the hands of yourself, in a way. But to me, that sounds like just the most, like, pure form of system creation right there. You're just doing it on the spot. You're saying, this is how the, I'm going to run this system. It's like a narrative yeah. sort of table mechanic that you're introducing. Like, I would, I would imagine there's a lot of people listening to this on mm-hmm. GDG who would say, oh, well, that could just be a mechanic that's officially in the rules is in, in spots oh, where yeah. you want sort of this coin flip, but you don't want the GM to make a fiat decision on it. You know, present yeah. the options and then roll a dice to determine it. That sounds like a system rule to me. Well, to me, with these kind of system rules, I feel like you don't want to make them so much official as much as you only, I would only use those in situations where things have gone completely pear shaped and I just need something now. And then later throughout the week, discuss if we're going to do any house rules, you know. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and that's I mean, something you end up getting. You know, people who have run games for a long time, and they have this book of house rules that they've adopted over time. Mm-hmm. And it's like I look at that and I say, "Looks to me like you're playing a bad system, and you should just make your own with you know these house rules that are more interesting." But mm-hmm. for the sake of accessibility, I guess you still want to start with something like D and D that's accessible and that everybody gets. And then the house rules are just easy to introduce when it's organic and when people naturally feel like it's time to introduce well, a rule for something. I think one thing a lot of people miss, though, is sometimes in these situations, you don't want to create a house rule out of it. But sometimes it is that thing that happens one in a million, but every other time that specific rule work. So you're just patching that one situation rather than the si- system itself. It is wonky, you know, usually you're not, there is an issue when you're having to do that. Yeah, it's kind of a an improvised problem-solving, you know, solution <laughs> as opposed to a system feature. Yeah, because cause I feel like that's the thing, a lot of times, as long as you're transparent and honest about it, you know, and it can get you in trouble if the rules change too often, obviously. But you do have flexibility. They don't have to be set in stone. So do you see yourself as being a game designer, or do you see yourself as being a DM who's making an adventure and has, you know, basically a list of complaints mm-hmm. that you don't, you're seeing other, other dungeon master kind of guys not addressing? I would say I've tried my hand at creating my own systems a couple of times, and but I really see myself more in the former, because, I mean, more in the latter, because as far as me being a game designer, I like to introduce new mechanics and adventures and whatnot, you know, things like, say robbing a dragon's horde, I'm going to create a little mini-game out of that, but that only is existing for in the situation of you're robbing a horde, yeah. you know, while a dragon's sleeping, which I feel like that... Adventure design can get into that game design territory. Well, then I'm I'm curious, how much would you say that fits in with the classic old school uh, idea of 
the dungeon master versus the sort of modern idea or like, where does that fit into that spectrum? Because I'm trying to, I said the other day on GDG, I'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what people even mean when they say like OSR on TG or like, um, or something like that. It's like, is that sort of this, uh, empower the idea of improvised encounters and improvised things at the table? Or is that not part of that? I would say, Part of the issue is OSR is like five different definitions. (laughs) Well, thank you. That's what I was trying to, I was trying to get a definition that worked. I couldn't figure it out. Yeah, because it's sort of like people will, will just mean very different things sometimes when they say that. And there's, there's like five different strains of it. So I'm not crazy. Okay, good. (laughs) In a lot of ways, it is sort of, it's like obscenity. You know OSR when you see it. It's sort of the closest thing I've found. <laughs> and you're, what sounds like in your own adventure that you're making, um, do you, do you include advice in there as to how to run it or are you expecting people um, to come in and already have enough of a, a tool bag that they've developed over time as a DM that they're going to just know how to, how to properly sell these things to the players and, and sort of run the whole thing? I would say, this adventure, I assume you're an experienced DM already if you're buying a self-published adventure off the internet. But I do have at the end a sort of what I call the adventure outline. Because this is something, it's funny, I pitched, I told my brother about it. He's like, oh, did he steal that from somewhere? And I'm like, no, I've never seen it in an adventure. But it seems very obvious where it's sort of, you just pit at a very macro level, here's the design of the adventure. Here's how the feedback loops work in it. Oh, that sounds absolutely essential. I'm surprised if that's not a common feature in these things. Yeah, everyone I've told, that's what they say. And that they're like, oh, that's not common. That's not a thing you've seen in other places. And in it, I just have, you know, how to run the beginning, a sort of thing of what the mechanics are. Because there are some adventure-specific mechanics in here. You know, like... uh, Things like the longer you spend time in the introduction, the more the first level of the dungeon where the princess is, the more they can prepare things. Oh, yeah. So say if you go in at time two, it's going to be different from if you go in at time five. Right, so all the hesitation and sort of paranoia and and whatever that players get up to when they're not being the heroes, (laughs) which you said that this is supposed to inspire... You know, it's like those who act decisively and quickly will actually have a a very pragmatic, real advantage if they go head first. Yeah, no get if they're just like, all right, we've got to go into here and save the fucking princess. Then you know, and they don't hesitate, they don't hee haw around it. Then they're just going to go in, and they're barely prepared for an for an assault when they go in. I think that's a great idea. Well, if you go in later, then now, you know, everything's already in place. They've shut the gates. Everything's, you know, they got to have more guards outside, and it's going to be much tougher. Let me ask you, uh, on a sort of a mechanical sort of preparation <laughs> level, I've never tried to uh, plan a an adventure that you could, that many different people could run with different characters, but it, it always seemed to me if you were going to make sort of a standalone D&D adventure that I would be tempted to throw in a lot of 
opportunities for sort of these niche, uh, play styles and classes and stuff to try to show off or highlight something as they're going through versus sort of a, a, a generic expectation of a DPS, a tank and a healer or something like that. It's like, if, do you think of that level of, of um, who might all be running this thing or do you? I think, uh, I would say I don't really think on so much the level of the individual player. And that's partly because, to me, I'm used to, just my personal experience, I'm used to very atypical party compositions being common, or either that or running versions of D&D where people are very broad and not very specialized. But I do have, I try and think about things like, I want it to be fun if they do a frontal assault, and I want it to be fun if they go in and sneak. And I want people you can interact with and convince to join you in case they're a more role-play heavy party. Right. That's and I'm trying to think of more general play style for the party. So that's more like player play styles versus character features that you're trying to show off. Yeah, because I guess to me, I'm someone I... Like, for example, my sense of balance is kind of rough because I think a tightly balanced adventure sometimes isn't as good as if you're just kind of loose with it. Well, it certainly would be more realistic that not everything would be balanced perfectly tailored to what players would or characters would expect. I mean... Oh, yeah. I think part of that is because this one, it has a story, but the story style, it sort of disappears after the intro. After that, it's just a location and suggested events that can occur. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, go ahead. It's sort of like, because it's something I get frustrated with a lot of newer, you know, 5E things, where they just go scene style, where they're like, scene one, this happens, scene two, this happens. Scene three, and this happens, and I've never seen that function in play. Huh. What ends up happening if you try to do that? What happens is the GM is desperately trying to salvage his scenes or get things to go in the scenes because the players never go in the correct <laughs> Like To me, it's sort of like you can build a location where it's like, here's this location, here's that location, and people have motivations. Because to me, that's more flexible as a DM, that you can run that even if the players go off in some weird direction. That's interesting. I mean, especially in a dungeon environment, which the dungeon is sort of this ultimate, uh, you know, limitation that the, the constraints of the dungeon are very oh, real. Yeah. Um, you can anticipate things a lot more and force things a lot more. Like there is just a literal choke point that everybody will have to go through if they want to get to the end. But it sounds like you're still trying to um, prevent that too tightly controlling what people experience, uh, yeah. which would be that scene control that you were talking about, I'm guessing. Because this it is what I would call a sort of semi-story-based dungeon because... What I do with it is say, I find it's easy to break down in a location like this, where are the decision points, where players can choose what direction to go in, and you can kind of make a line, you know, a little graph of it, and it will very clearly show the overall decision structure of it. And so what I try and do is, having these little loops, 
but the loops will intersect at story important locations. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, and that way it's like you're always going to encounter these story important things, but you, you know, by the time you've reached that story important thing, you've made, you know, three, four, five decisions on your navigation, your exploration. So nobody feels like they're being led around by their nose or anything like that because they still make interesting decisions and then they encounter whatever it is. But I think with these sort of decisions, it's also important to telegraph a little bit, you know, because if you just have two generic hallways with no information about them, that's not an actual decision. Because if you have, yeah, if you have no information about your decision, you're just flipping a coin. Yeah. Or you're, you know, get that situation where people feel like they have to split the party or something because they can't decide what they want to do or whatever. Oh, yeah. And it's something that ends up, it's really common in a lot of old school design, actually, that because they'll go very minimalist with the writing. Right, so that's where people end up making these uh, bad decisions, quote-unquote, but how is it really a bad decision if you had no chance of determining which one was yeah. a good decision? If you had no idea how to do, you know, make your decision or whatever. Yeah, I find that very interesting, that the advice you have and the insight you have on just um, designing something with the amount of experience you have as a dungeon master, running something which is as flawed as Dungeons and Dragons, um, you end up, I would say it's like you've built up a lot of muscle, of creative muscle of what to do because the system isn't doing it for you. And you have to basically learn the ins and outs of how to actually make it engaging in that sense. Cause that's the kind of insight that um, I know that from a, like a system level, the system doesn't care. Uh, no. But as a guy running the game, obviously you end up realizing this. A lot of G- GMs and DMs don't realize that. And they just sort of stick with these bad habits or say that, you know, ah, you made a bad choice. You went in, you went left instead of right. And yeah, no, you went left instead of right. Fuck you, get good. And it's like they can't get good because they had no information. <laughs> you know, like they flipped a coin, dude. There's no skill involved in that. <laughs> that makes me really interested to see uh, how your how your adventure plays out and and how you've designed it. What would the uh, what kind of workflow would you say that you had? Like when you started doing this, was it? Uh, natural and sort of easy because of how much experience you had? Um, I would say it was natural, but it kind of took a minute because I just sort of obsessed over a lot of detail in it because I'm always of the opinion that you can have, you can kind of fuck up the macro if your details are really good. The details are what's important and can kick something to the top tier. Right. So in this, it's sort of a initial lo- workflow is just brainstorming, and on that, I'm thinking of evocative scenes, evocative moments, you know, really interesting just encounters that you can have in a game. And that's sort of the first thing I think of, and I'm thinking how to tie all of these together in right. something. But not tie them together I- in a way that's a a scene transition, but tying them together from the sounds of it with interesting decisions. Yeah, with make a lot of interesting decisions or all of that. And once you tie it in, it's sort of a... Because to me, the biggest thing is the actual encounters themselves, the little 
moment of you open a door and walk into a room or you talk to an NPC, something like that. Those are the most important parts of the adventure. So you put the most thought into those, presumably, and then the the rest can be filled in later, right? Yeah, and the rest can be filled in later. And as far as map design, how things in a dungeon or in a town interact with each other, I'm thinking on a very gameplay level. Or I'm just almost like a board game or, you know, tactical level. What does it make sense realistically, and can I fudge the realisticness to make it more fun gameplay-wise? Huh. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm trying to think of, like, if you're designing a town or something... I've always thought that's that's a that should be a very dynamic, uh, you know, fluid environment where you're trying to quote unquote simulate the town. But it sounds like you're just more like, uh, here's the fundamentals you need just so that on a gameplay level it doesn't fall apart or something. Yeah, on on towns I don't go too big into detail, and that's partly because. I guess to me, towns what I focus on is have things be very open-ended. So, say one NPC relates to another NPC, but you don't design any sort of quest or ending to it. You basically design the beginning, the hook, and that's it. And just, because when it's left open-ended, I feel like everything, if everything has a hook, everything is open-ended, it'll become chaos. And chaos is the fun part of a town. Oh, I see. Yeah. I thought you were going to say chaos is, you know, a pain in the ass to, <laughs> for the GM, but uh, I guess that's the same thing. It's, it's a fun mess you have to manage. Oh, yeah. It's it's a fun mess. It's sort of... Because as far as the town, a big thing I think about it, as far as actually writing it is you want it to be evocative. You don't need... Because I feel like you don't need to go into a lot of detail if the three or four sentences you have on a building are something that can inspire ideas that are easy to riff off of if you're improving. Right. And then, uh, uh, and then as far as towns there, I usually write them as just a list of NPCs that just relate to each other, you know, and I like to have little things with what resources you can get in there and tie those to specific people, make everyone relate to each other. You know, little mini rivalries and friendships and... Yeah. I don't know, because on this adventure, I didn't want the town to be a super dangerous area. Well, it sounds like you're trying to push the, the players out of the town very quickly and get them to actually do something interesting on the adventure side of things, but do you have... Like, if you listen to this old woman that's telling you to stay in the town, presumably you have to have interesting things to do in the town, then. Yeah, I try to include some interesting things in the town, because my idea with it is, as you go throughout this whole adventure, because there's something like the first, you can clear in the first level in a session or two, but I've seen playtesters have told me it would probably be more like ten sessions to finish the whole adventure. I see. So... With the town, my idea is that it should never be the main focus, but there should be something interesting you can do in the town, you know, that sort of thing. Just so that this is not just a generic town, because I want the players to give a shit about these NPCs. 
Yeah, but on, on the other hand, I want to ask you this, just maybe as a general advice mm-hmm. on DMing or whatever, but from the little bit that I have run a game, I tried to put in, like you said, details that would get people interested and hooked with these NPCs and stuff, but I found that there was a huge problem where I would put in little details mm-hmm. and I would sort of have even secrets that were like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you really dig into this particular aspect of it, you'll find out this or that. And what ended up happening was my players got this sense that they could dig in anywhere and there would always be a payoff that was clever or interesting and they didn't mm. want to leave the town. They wanted to just keep digging for secrets and stuff. And it, the details were actually too effective in that sense. They were <laughs> like, it set up an expectation of, of detail that was like, I, I actually have this whole adventure you're supposed to be going on. You're not supposed to just sit in this town and, and do this, but if I was going to design like a pre-made adventure, especially, I, I feel like I would be tempted to just sort of, uh, well, the, the, the example I would use, I guess, the comparison would be, um, Ultima, which was basically <laughs> Richard Garriott's, you know, D&D campaign. And he would have this obsessive level of detail where he would, you know, plan out these relationships and these hidden tunnels under this guy's house that you'd never know about unless you just really explore it and stuff. And this huge sandbox sort of feeling with all these little details still. And, you know, that's sort of one way to go with it where you have the broad strokes are there, but you're designing it as a sandbox. Whereas your approach sounds like you're, what did you Mm -hmm. call it? The chaos funnel. It's a lot more about, you know, pushing people towards, uh, various choices, not one choice over the other, but, different choices they can make and not trying to make it sort of this loose sandbox feeling. Yeah, because I'll say I've I've ran a lot of sandboxes and I feel like sandboxes are good, but you never want to start a sandbox as a sandbox. You know, you want to kind of have something that very strongly pushes them into a direction and then let them go and do whatever they want. I see. In that direction. As far as in the town, one thing I found is it's useful to tie a lot of things in the town with the adventure. Yeah. So, sir, don't, don't make the town separated from the rest of the adventure. Like maybe the thing that you get is a reward, even if you do spend time there and accomplish something directly relates to helping you on the adventure. So it's sort of like, yay, you, you got this thing, now it's going to help you do the adventure. It's like... Oh, yeah. You got something to help with the adventure, or you have to do the adventure to finish something in town, you know, and there should be kind of a feedback loop between your town and your dungeon and your wilderness. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, as an aside, um, we were still going through your workflow, I guess the brainstorming process, oh, yeah. as you were talking about. Let, let's just move on from that. What do you do after the brainstorming process? Um... Usually after the brainstorming process, which a lot of the brainstorming process involves just me bouncing ideas off of, uh, off of my brother, off of various, you know, some people who are players I know who aren't in my games. Yeah. Or I'm just sort of like, if I can't, if I can pitch it in three seconds and they either say, oh, that's kind of lame, then I don't include it. Or if they like it, I'll even include some of their ideas if it gets them amped with it. And so that's a big thing, just feedback, the ideas. And I think about 
before I start on the map, I think about what's the macro level of this adventure. I'll say, like in this adventure, I try to have each level has a very different gameplay and design feel to it. Right. So, say in the first level, I want it to be it's a raid style. You have a very clear objective. You're going into this level, and you're just trying to finish your objective. Now, when you so say level, I'm, you're talking about a level of a dungeon? Yeah, like a level of a dungeon. Oh, okay. And level, you can use like an area. Say, if you're uh, doing a wilderness or town thing, you can have them be different buildings in different geographical locations. Right, but it's essentially a, a large scenario or a you know a little sandbox or however you want to look at it. Oh yeah, it's just like a large scenario, and you know I feel like it's important to have each level be kind of have its own feel. Do something a little unique with it. Right. Yeah. So then after you've after you've come up with all these different ideas, you have to tie them together, and I guess there'd be like an overall arc that you're trying to build. Uh, that will connect yeah. all of the different pieces together without, you know, having dead spaces that are sort of, uh, like, I can see how there's a sort of a streamlining that has to happen. Yeah, because a lot of times what I do is I'll brainstorm, say, ideas for 30 encounters, and I only use 20 of them. You really have to be ruthless with just cut stuff that doesn't work. And you know whether, well, I guess on, in a way you w- know whether it works or not just based on whether people become interested by pitching it. Yeah, by if they pitch it and it just sounds like something they immediately want to play in, then you know it's going to generally work. And I, well, it's really playtesting is the last step of the process, is one of the last steps. So how- playtesting is what makes or breaks it. Right, so you have actually playtested your adventure that you're you're currently doing, right? Yeah, I playtested it, and I had another DM playtest it. And to me, that felt actually more useful for this product than me playtesting it. I can see why. I mean, you get, in a way, it's a stress test on a whole different level because having different players come in and, and test the same thing, but you're GMing the same way. The, whatever the room for, uh, improvisation and stuff the, the DM has, um, especially you did say that you had that outline that sort of tells people how to run the thing. Did that come after the playtesting or was that something you had in mind earlier on already? That came when I was talking to the playtest DM and he was confused about how, what the macro level of the adventure was. I see. I figured that must that must be it because that uh, makes a lot of sense. You know, you could get a lot of. I mean, like every DM has kind of their own bag of tricks that they can pull out of uh, at any given time after enough time running oh, the yeah. games. They just sort of, yeah, whenever this happens, I just sort of do this. It's like it's a, it's not how the game is quote unquote supposed to work, but everybody has their mm-hmm. own style, but. One of the results of that is that if you're playing as something of a pre-made module or adventure, presumably you don't want them to reach into certain bags of tricks. You want them to have a certain mentality when they get yeah. into it. And a big thing I found was with it that when I'm running the adventure, I just know in my head how everything works, how everything fits together. Or when a DM runs the adventure, someone else the only resource they have are the things I've written down. 
So if I'm unclear on a certain point, it fucks everything up. Yeah. And sort of, as far as design, it's sort of like, I have the map, I have, you know, how things fit together, and it's sort of like, as I write it out, I end up in sort of a loop where I write out for a bit, and then I go to earlier in my writing, just to make things consistent, get the flavor going, make the design tighter. Right, because what you want to do, much like, you know, writing a story or whatever, is you want to have good foreshadowing early on and good, um, uh, like you said, what, what did you call it? Um, not signaling, but uh, telegraphing. Oh, telegraphing. Yeah, yeah, you want to telegraph things so that people can make those interesting choices later. So if later on in this whole thing you, you come up with some sort of key element that's, you know, essential, but players wouldn't have any idea about earlier, it would make sense to go back and sort of be like, oh, well, here's a here's a possible way you could find out about this earlier, get a hint about it or something like that. Yeah, or sort of like a, I had like a little magic item where it's a, a beard lock from First Lord and Queen, and I just had it as a throwaway magic item. Then that character became important in the backstory of this dungeon. So I had to go back, change the item, make it more consistent, tell more about what's going on here. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. And then after you get the play testing, you can kind of make your final rounds of revisions and stuff and then make your your outline, I guess. Yeah, and like one thing I found is a lot of people say to say layout for last. But I think you wanna have a rough layout of a project like this very early on. Because what happens is say if you only have so much word space for a room description you need to know that before you start writing. Like, you write out the room, but your revisions are all going to be influenced by how much space do I have on the page. This. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I've never physically tried to to lay out uh, instructions alongside maps and stuff like that. But if you're selling it, um, I'm guessing a lot of it you could base on existing adventure modules and stuff like that. As far as like. You don't have to reinvent the wheel there either. You just have to make your own based on what, yeah. what's tried and true in that sort of tradition of building adventures and having pre-made modules and stuff. But as far as layout and writing, I guess uh, I'm influenced by things I like and things I dislike. Like, and a lot, and this is something I really dislike about a lot of uh, you know third-party 5e products, Wizards Coast stuff is. It's very dry, it's conversational, and it drones on way too fucking long. <laughs> like, to me, at the table, you know, you get a room description. I don't need an entire page to run a room description. Just give me the general gist so I can roll with it. Right. <laughs> All right, so, and then the um, the flavor of it, I mean, the, that is in the details, but... Uh, I guess you just make a note of those details and it sort of is apparent what the, the flavor is. You don't need to yeah. explain it three times. Like sort of a, like there's the kitchen example. If you write, this is a kitchen, you don't need to write that it has silverware, you know, ovens, all of that <laughs> here. Because you already said it's a kitchen. The reader knows what's in a kitchen. Now you can say it's a kitchen and focus on what is flavorful about the kitchen. 
what you wouldn't yeah, expect is almost details. like, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you allow people to fill in the de- the blank spaces with, you know, sort of the general idea of it, but then whatever they wouldn't expect and whatever is unique is what you actually need to make a note of. So that's, yeah, you uh, make a note of things that are important to it and writing style wise, I guess, like, uh, a lot of adventures, they do that conversational writing style where they don't pay attention to rhythm. You know, you want to pay attention to rhythm in writing. And then there's, you know, so you never, the kind of thing of, you don't say something big. You say, you don't say a tower is really tall. You say it's so high that people at the base can't see the sun. <laughs> right. Okay. I see what you mean. That's what that goes back to the evocative description. <laughs> Yeah, because those are the details that really can make or break an encounter. It's crazy to me to think that that would be the kind of detail that could make or break an encounter, but I guess it really is true because uh, the the level of engagement players have is essentially what makes or breaks the whole thing. Is once they become disinterested, the adventure and the whole the whole illusion falls apart. Yeah, like uh, you know, like the kind of thing of. Players aren't going to be interested in, you know, say, you just say, oh, there's a, uh, you know, megalith there. But if you say, you know, just describe it in like a sentence more detailed that really hits on the point, some specific tone or atmosphere or mood, then now you're getting in a good GMing and good adventure design. But you wouldn't, I guess that's sort of the, what I would expect from, um, Wizards of the Coast themselves, if they were making something, was would be to babysit and handhold new GMs and new DMs to be like, here's how you should describe the scene, and here's you know some examples of things you could tell the players about this this scene because you're, yeah. you're aiming this for experienced DMs who should already know how to spice up the description of a mm-hmm. kitchen, but you know. It, Somebody who's just totally new to the hobby would be like, well, it's a kitchen. I mean, I don't know. It's a kitchen, yeah. It's like (laughs) they don't know how to sell it as much, and there's a lot of salesmanship that has to happen when you're running a game. Yeah, and it's something, I guess to me, like, uh, I don't know, it's it's a few different design quirks. Like I saw one third-party adventure. All the reviews were really good, really good on it. But what I noticed was, saying the main villain, every single NPC tells you how great this person is, but the only action they do in front of the players, and that really affects things, is they play some music. So I'm like, you're, you're telling the player someone's great, but you're never showing them. Huh. And I think that's an aspect of this. Like, don't tell someone it's a very ancient statue. You say it's wet, so weathered you can't see the face on it. Right. Let them, uh, you know, draw the conclusion. Yeah, you give them everything they need to draw the conclusion because you don't need, you know, it gets you more immersed in it because that's how we interact with actual objects in our everyday lives. We don't get told a building is old. We recognize the details that tell us it's old. Right. There's a lot of counterintuitive logic to that kind of thing because just like you said, um, the details, you know, sort of hook people and, uh, and, and that the something like a barrier is more interesting if they tell you not to go somewhere 
it's more enticing to an adventurer than to tell them that they have to go somewhere. Likewise, yeah. it's like telling them that something is really interesting and old and important is in a way much more boring than making it mysterious and, you know, possibly irrelevant. You don't know, but you sort of intrigue them based on the, these details that you're hoping that they'll bite. Mm-hmm. And sir, I think, cause I really think that's the thing. It's all in the details, you know, like, uh, and sort of, you know, you want to love these evocative details, but to me, the golden ideal is where your details, your evocativeness, your mechanics, and your gameplay all just build on each other, all work with each other. Yeah. Oops. And I, I like that you said that you had the the theme, sort of this decision-making theme that you wanted to have of people having to make these crucial decisions, and you can't solve all the problems, so you have to make you know, these hard choices. Um, and then obviously you can reinforce that over and over again throughout it so that even though you have, you know, p- players have the freedom, they have whatever, um, you're not just going off of a storytelling sort of setting with details or whatever. You really are pushing them into difficult choices and then adding in the, these sort of details and hooks and stuff, presumably in these spaces in between where they have to, um, they have yes. to become interested in the next part, whatever the next part is going to be. Because I think a big thing a lot of people miss is you have to allow failure. You have to allow the players can do some. If the if your adventure can't handle the players failing at something, it's fragile. Yeah, and then like it's harsh to say, I guess that you have to just you know have a design that can let them fail, that can let them fuck up. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of to what extent um, you can have people fail before you basically have to give them a lot of, uh, you know, re-energy, re-energize them or give them a, sort of a push. But I guess there's there's different levels of failure. There's, you know. Yeah. Um, how much when you do when you do playtesting and stuff, because I haven't seen you talk about your adventure much on GDG. What would you yeah. say that the role of GDG is for you? Because um, I would say getting ideas on a, a lot of times I get I, I'll see. I guess I just I sort of like to check it once a day because what happens is I always end up every now and then seeing a really insightful idea on it. Right. I'll see. Say, let me see. Let me look, let me look it up real quick. See if I can. Cool, an example here. I like how GDG say no go into things like specific phrases. I've seen a couple of times where people say things like "use" is not a specific, not a example for game terminology. It's something I saw somewhere, and it's something to think about, you know. Because I guess what is GDG goes a little more off his mold than anywhere else I've seen. Is where is honestly where it's useful. It's sort of a... Sorry, GDG is, is what more than other places? It goes more autismal than oh. other places. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that the first time. I'm like, what? Tismal? <laughs> I see what you mean. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a whole spectrum of, uh, no, no pun intended, there's a whole spectrum of uh, different designers that, you know, some are really trying to push for a accessible, um, 
casual, almost narrative sort of angle. <laughs> and there's others that are super diehard into the technical machinery of how everything works and, and rules lawyering and that kind of stuff. And for me, that's like a, a huge benefit. And that's why also I, even if I'm not particularly, you know, I don't need any particular thing from anyone. <laughs> I'm not there to get an answer. Just going there and seeing the attitude people bring to game design, you do get, I would say you do get a, a healthy variety of people uh, going oh. into the completely theoretical abstract down to the very nitty gritty execution of technical things. Mm-hmm. Like just in this that I pulled up where it's like, either in the shooting phase or in the fight phase being a problematic way to phrase something. I'm like, damn, that is super nitty gritty and autismal, but it's like, that's something to think about. You know, do you want to get to that level of specificity in your writing? Maybe you should. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But it's not something you're going to see in other forums of people getting that nitty gritty sometimes. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a great, uh, observation. I, I know a lot of different, everybody who's come on here, I've asked them basically what they get out of <laughs> GDG or a place like TG. And the answers are always different, but that's one that uh, I haven't heard yet. That's <laughs> there is a certain value to just it, it hits you from left field kind of. It's like, oh yeah, there are people that it bothers them when something is is ambiguous, even on that mm-hmm. level where it's like common sense says obviously it's supposed to be interpreted this way, but. No, in tabletop games where there's not a computer that decides for you, there's not a, <laughs> an, you know, a hard coded answer. You do need to sometimes get so specific with the uh, terminology and, and, uh, structure. Yeah, and that it reads like, it's like reading programming code almost. You, you know? <laughs> yeah, or like, uh, like, uh, legal speak or something like that. It's like, at some point it dips back into the other side where it becomes hard for normal people to read because you're being so technical. It's like, oh yeah, this solves the problem. But now myself, I'd say that creates a new problem where a normal person just doesn't want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, uh, GDG is a, is a cool place to lurk just because people are passionate about parts of game design that most people would ignore. And uh, I think we were talking a little bit before the recording there about how it's the kind of place that, you know, if people are there, they are probably somewhat passionate about it. They're not looking for sort of this average community. Oh, yeah. And it's something I think to me that I like about it is it's sort of like how to pit it. There's no real orthodoxy to people's ideas or design. No, yeah. Because that's something that bothers me a lot. I'll see the sort of conventional wisdom that ends up, you know, the conventional wisdom is just straight up wrong, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah. I think 4chan and TG are, in general, good for sort of breaking apart orthodoxy and and <laughs> refusing to accept a hive mind, sort of a consensus on how something should work or how something, what's the best. Yeah, and it, it comes, you know, it comes along with, it's because 
PG and 4chan in general is so contrarian that it brings, you know, hey, people call out, you know, stuff that's popular and bullshit, you know, in addition to just being pure contrarian. And the people who withstand that and remain, like yourself, I mean, everybody hates on D&D and says you shouldn't play D&D. It doesn't stop you. So obviously that means, you know, you have some convictions to back up what you do. You're not just bending to whatever the current thing is. And that sort of filters yeah. out the, the sort of fair weather uh, hobbyists who, you know, they, they don't really care about what they're doing. They're just following a trend. Yeah, and sort of, I think maybe that's why I've, I haven't seen a whole lot of quality 5e products, I'd say. Maybe because, I don't know, it is the big dog. It is the most popular. So you get the lowest common denominator stuff in it from the fair weather hobbyists. Yeah, there's got to be some of that, at least. I know that uh, on this podcast, you know, I have very strong mm-hmm. opinions on what's good or bad in, in game design and different tabletop things, but the whole reason why I like to do it and talk to different people here is because I want that diversity of opinion and even just straight-up conflicting opinions and totally oh, yeah. disagreements. I think the best insights come from completely cl- clashing ideologies or philosophies you see where where they meet and where they match and uh how they conflict that's where you get a com- a competition at a marketplace of different ideas is a lot better than sort of having this hug box where everybody thinks the same thing and nobody gets properly oh, challenged no and that seems to be kind of a problem to me of just like yeah this total just hug box thing going on when to me, I feel like though there's so much diversity in RPGs, partly because the methods and ideology you want can very can be so effective. You know, you can have things that are radically different, but work in a context of what kind of game you're running. Yeah, is something that always surprises me of how you know. And there are a lot of techniques that to me just sound like total dog shit, but I can see they can work in certain kinds of games. Yeah, yeah, I think. Uh, that's kind of a, like, I, I'm not really a big believer that, uh, all fun is just totally subjective and there's no such thing as a better or worse game or a better or worse experience. But you do have to kind of respect the fact that if you, if you run with an idea far enough and you, you figure it out and hammer it out properly, you can get completely different approaches to the same basic concept of an an adventure with a group or whatever. Um, There's no correct answer. There's a lot of different correct answers and a lot of, a lot more really bad answers. Yeah. Cause I think like, yeah, you're right. There are, there are a lot of correct answers and correct answers will conflict with each other, be, you know, clashing, but there are also a lot of just straight up wrong answers. (laughs) It's, and I think a lot of I don't know how you feel about the the sort of idea of a unifying theory of of game design, but I know that one of the things that is hilarious on something like uh, 4chan, uh, like TG, or even this GDG is different opinions on these sort of um, universal theories of game design because you do have contrarians, you have people who are so different. But theoretically, it's kind of like, uh, to make an analogy to like music, it's like there's basically correct, you know, music. There's a language for it. There's 
um, sort of a universal theory of what notes and, and chords and stuff sound good to the human ear. And, like, and then there's just, so there's a lot of different music you can make using that theory, and it's all correct, even if they sound totally different. But it, it's like there's sort of this dream of this, um, uh, what would you call it, like the philosopher's mm-hmm. stone or whatever. Like if you could find yeah. that thing that would just unify all these things and tell us what is good game design. <laughs> what is good game design? I feel like for game design, it would be like a unifying theory of it would be less like, it wouldn't look like a real philosophy of game design. It would be almost more a meta-philosophy. Like, instead of saying what values are good, a unifying theory would be about how to create values. It'd be so meta, it'd be almost useless outside of academia. <laughs> it would get, yeah, because this is one of the, the things that I love talking about on this podcast, I could probably talk about forever, is the, the levels of abstraction that happen in a tabletop role-playing game where you have people, you know, imagining the scenario with their characters, and then you have a, a different guy who's managing all of the players' experiences, um, and then you have the game designer who's accounting for all the multivariable, oh, yeah. you know, GMs who have different styles of running different games with different people, and then you want to go one level above that yet and have a theory that all game designers have to create these experiences for these types of people who create experiences, who create these experiences for these people who create experiences. It's like this weird nested egg thing that just never seems to stop. I don't know if anyone's going to gonna be able to manage that someday, but <laughs> I love talking to the, uh, the crazy people who try to figure it out. To me, it's like, uh, I feel like the closest we've gotten at this point is... There's a lot of good advice for techniques, you know, and there's a lot of advice for things that are functional, but I don't think there's anything unifying that grabs me as being very real. Yeah. I love to try to find, I love to try to find like common denominators between totally different philosophies. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of what catches my attention is like, these are, these are conflicting things, but if you pay attention to it, there's sort of a, a theme that runs throughout them and stuff. That's why one of the reasons why I like to talk to different guys on this podcast here and really pick their brains on what they think makes for uh, the best game design principles because it's like they, it's almost guaranteed everyone's going to have a strong opinion. Oh, and yeah. Sometimes they're going to, uh, like, I mean, I think you have to have a strong opinion if you want to design a game. I, I can't imagine. I, well, I guess I can. You see all the, you see them all the time starting mm-hmm. a project and never finishing it because that's the sort of what happens when you don't have a strong opinion is that you never settle on something as being better than the alternative. Yeah, you don't have that, you know, drive opinionatedness. It's sort of, and I think to me with game design, it's almost like you need to be doing something because your product needs to justify its own existence. Yeah, so in a way you have to even look for differences, even if you're like, well, this is a, this is a definitely a good enough system. Like, GURPS is good enough. It's a universal oh, game, yeah. you know? Why, why not just run everything using GURPS? It's like, you have to forcefully, you know, make a stand and say, no, I want to be different than this. I want to be different than that. Even just on a, on a marketing product level, but, <laughs> you know, presumably even on a deeper, 
design philosophy yeah. level, you want to yeah, just be like, why should this exist? It's yeah, you and you have to. It's kind of arbitrary. You have to draw a line in the sand, but that mm-hmm. line that you draw in the sand is not arbitrary at all. Once you start working around it and designing around it, oh yeah, that's sort of like the something with this product I've been working on. It's sort of like I don't know. It's weird because it feels like I'm just drawing in a lot of different ideas I've had on game design and on adventure design. And really, knowing the core of it is I feel like I'm trying to do something as far as, like, the adventure design, the flavor, the type of fantasy I'm doing that I just don't see in 5e, but I feel like 5e can actually work well for, you know, on a mechanical level. Yeah. Yeah, I I would really be curious uh, what other players of 5e would say uh, when they check it out. I mean... I would be a poor judge of whether it's good or bad because I don't have enough experience with it one way or the other. But um, hopefully people who listen to this and uh, and and check it out, I mean, is it going to be available on uh, DriveThruRPG, I imagine, or where are you going to try to put it? Yeah, it's going to be on DriveThruRPG. Mm-hmm. You have a, like, mm-hmm. would this, is that the kind of thing where you get tempted to make, like, a, a site for it or some other outside source of people can read about it? Or is that, is that I more like you just want to try to get the, everybody to go to this one drive through RPG page? I think I get tempted to make like a blog or a site or something. But to me, part of the issue is that, you know, I have a full-time job. I work 40 to 50 hours a week. And this to me is like my passion project and my hobby. Yeah. But you know, our, when I was working on this heavily, I was putting in, you know, four or five hours a day on it, and it's like, I just don't have enough time in the day to treat it like the business. It would be, if you're just like, I'm going to make a product, make a whole line of it, make a website, Kickstarter, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I work full-time, too. I get th- this podcast <laughs> and everything I do on, on GDG and stuff, it's all based on the, uh you know... The, the passion that you just like, I don't know. I feel like oh, I would yeah. go crazy if I wasn't working on something like this. So I'm going to keep working on it. You know, it's a, yeah, it's, it's not something that I can devote the time to that I would like to, but right. it's not going to stop me from using the time that I do have. And I think as soon as you bite off something like a blog or something that, you know, you want to try to maintain on a regular basis, I'm sort of struggling with that myself with, my game mm-hmm. idea. I, I definitely want to support it after it's out, and I definitely want to have more things available uh, and leave it open-ended that I can keep adding stuff. But it's hard to start something like that and then think, well, maybe I, I just won't have time to do it justice. Yeah. And maybe I think like my way, my workflow just doesn't seem to work well for like a blog type thing because to me, I like to just create a project define what the project is going to be, and then just work on it until it's at a level that I can show it to other people. So with a blog, it's sort of like you have to drip feed little small things. Well, me, I'm just investing all my time into these projects. Like when I tried a blog, I felt like it was taking time away from things I preferred to be doing. That's, that's, that is such a conundrum for creators nowadays anyway, because 
you know, I've heard people, I've talked to other creators, you know, not on this podcast, but just other guys that I know that are working on stuff. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'd love to do like a Kickstarter for this. And like, they don't realize how much work a Kickstarter is. Like the, the amount of communication and then reaching out to the press and trying to make press releases and updates and stuff like you don't have any time to work on the actual project anymore. If you, unless you have a team of people that are helping you, if you're just a hobby, you know, creator, Mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult to uh, manage the the public side of it and invest all the time into it. But what would you, what would you think to something like just creating a discord channel or, a um Facebook page or something like that if you have Facebook like some place where people can just kind of leave comments and feedback if you want to um I would say to me with Facebook I thought of that but the you know to me it's a really good thing with it to do that but at that point you're getting into like growing the community around your products is really what you're trying to do. Like a lot of YouTubers do this where it's sort of you make your Facebook, you make your Discord, you make your Google Plus channel and try and combine all of them. And you're really trying to create a community of people who are into similar things to you. You know, it's like starting up a forum. Right. Which, to me, if you're just having a Facebook, you might as well just drop an email. Because if you're not trying to create a community, it's just a communication channel of you directly communicating with people. Yeah, I kind of have to agree. I think... Uh, people shouldn't underestimate just making an email available and having direct communication with the person who's making it. But, uh, we, earlier on the podcast, we were talking to somebody else who, you know, said that everything you make should have, you know, its own page basically that people can go to because you'll get, you'll end up getting feedback from places for people who are too lazy to email or too, you know, they're interested enough to leave feedback, but not quite interested enough to make that personal email, which sort of is intimidating for some people. They don't like to feel like they're going to have a one-on-one conversation with the creator of something, or it's just sort of a, a different social context to have yeah. a public page where people are just sort of chiming in with a little thought here or there. I think there's ups think, and downs to doing both. Yeah. I think that is a good idea of what they're talking about though. You know, I personally haven't done it, but it, I think it'd be a good idea. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm hoping people, you know, end up checking out this adventure. And, and I think, um, if you do, does it include a contact, you know, address there on, in the, if they buy it or is it all through drive through RPG or what? If you, if you buy it on drive through RPG, you do get a buyer message. Is what I have. So, so the contact info isn't in the PDF itself, but you do get my email contact info all that. Right. So if somebody really wanted to, they could still find you. It just wouldn't be as convenient maybe as, or as discoverable, I guess, is the other way of looking mm-hmm. at it as a page that's dedicated to it or something like that. I'm trying to oh, think yeah. of, you know, you know, this is, this is your opportunity to uh, shill any channels or other yeah. things you want to do here. <laughs> I guess, uh, I don't know, I have about, on my page, about four other adventures I've put out so far, and oh. they're all sort of lamentations, basic D&D, and that sort of system. Interesting. For, uh, and as far as, like, getting contacts for people, I found 
as far as sales of my stuff, it skyrockets if I get a review of it on a public site. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so that's what I really focus on. And with this, I send emails to about 40 people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've Which I recommend because it's, it's just send, you know, just send cold call people, just hit up strangers over the internet. <laughs> I've heard other guys, I haven't done that myself, but mm-hmm. I know that can be an agonizing and awkward feeling to be like, Ah, uh, well, I, you don't know me, but I just made this thing and I hope you care about it. You know, it's like, it's, it's a hard way of doing it. I know the podcast I, I like to yeah. think of is a, is a nice casual environment to be able to come and talk about it, you know, cause <laughs> I'm always interested in hearing what people are working on in different creative oh, struggles yeah. and stuff they're doing, but getting a proper review from somebody, cause obviously we're not, I'm not reviewing it mm-hmm. and it's not going into the specifics that much of, of judging it as a product. I'm not judging it at all as a product. I'm just interested in yeah. it as a creator. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough grind if you want to try to get people to suddenly notice something out of the blue. And that's sort of what I found. Like, I sent it to about 40 people and about six people responded so far. Yeah. So it feels like it's just all, it's, and I don't know, it's sort of like you get real nervous when you're doing that because if you have any sort of social anxiety, that's going to trigger it. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. And that's like, no, it's pretty rare to get it. Well, I guess it shouldn't be. I mean, in a tabletop, yeah. the role-playing game is is a pretty social thing by nature, but <laughs> it's usually social amongst a bunch of introverts or something. Like, it seems like oh, yeah. the game designer is a level above the the GM in that sort of uh I don't know if you need to be introspective to make to make games or, or whatever but I guess you have to be obsessive to some level. Yeah. You know if you if you're a hobbyist game designer you have to be obsessed with what you're doing because you're making a product for essentially free. You're not gonna make the money back. Yeah, that you exactly. put in hours into it. <laughs> <laughs> So having that and then still try to, you know, push it in public ways and just sort of, you know, uh, evangelize your product is always this sort of, I always feel sorry for people trying to push something when it's very clear that they're, they're awkward about it or they're anxious about it or they're whatever. And like, and, and GDG is definitely going to have that problem oh, yeah. on a continual basis. And I, I kind of wish that there was a platform or that, you know, someday, this is just total bullshit, but someday there's GDG should be like a platform for like publicizing stuff that, you know, almost be like a, a brand that can be like help people put stuff out a little bit more. Cause. Oh yeah. And that'd be great. Cause, cause GDG is already useful for a lot of times I'll just out of the blue, be like, hey guys, what do you think of this? And you can get feedback on general ideas. Yeah. Really well there. Yeah. I mean, right. I invite people who are listening to this. If you, if you have something you want to work on, if you want to try to, you know, get feedback, get ideas, get brainstorming or help other people with their stuff, go on there and just mix it up and stuff. Cause it seems no. like the more left field and crazy ideas are, sometimes the more people appreciate the, the, the the diversity of ideas there, but also oh, yeah. if you have a product that you want to, you know, 
get advice on, like tips on publishing and stuff like that. There's guys who are in there who have literally put out like 10 or 11 different products that have sold and whatever. And, you know, you can always end up finding some sort of feedback on whether it's hiring editors or hiring, uh, advertising and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. Um, it sounds like you're not pushing for this to be like a major thing. It's going to be a solid, a solid entry and a above the way above the norm in terms of the quality. But yeah, uh, this isn't going to be like your business that you're going to try to like, you know, make no, a living from. I'm not, I don't think, cause right now it's like, you know, I'm a nurse. I make about 50 grand a year. I'm not going to make money off indie RPGs like I do off day job. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's sort of a and I find that I guess for me my goal with this is be above average and I'm pitting out as a pay what you want product. Okay. Yeah, because it's like it's about fifty pages. You get seventy five rooms, a little story, you know, a village, some appendices. And my idea of it is sort of be such good quality for such a low entry point where I can just throw it at people that people will play it, that people will read it, play it. Cause that's what I really give about. Yeah, totally. I think that, that that's such an interesting and healthy way of looking at it. I mean, I, I also, I would actually be kind of weirded out if making games is my <laughs> full time thing. I think it could easily backfire. I think, yeah. You would end up burning yourself out and just reaching and stretching for ideas and rushing things out that you're not even passionate about anymore because you just need to make a buck off of it. And it kind of. I feel like it'd be easy to just pit out shovel player, you know? Yeah. Or, or end up yeah. going for like the most bait sort of like, ah, oh, this is what's hot right now. I'm just going to follow whatever the, the current thing is that's a cool meme or something like that. Yeah. Like, you might back away from a cool idea because you're like, this might be too polarizing. Yeah. I would much rather have a cool <laughs> community like GDG or something like that, where it's like other creators will see it and, you know, hopefully it spreads to whatever extent nat naturally and organically from people talking about it. But you kind of have to, uh, have to manage your own, uh, yeah. Manage your like, time and, and have this real passion for doing it as a hobby and probably the hobby RPGs that, that come out of GDG. I'm looking forward to more than I'm looking forward to the next major commercial release, to be honest. Yeah, because to me, it's sort of like how to pit it. Like, like I'm not going to make a living out of this until I, you know, like, I would like to make a living out of it. But I'm not going to quit my job and chase being a hobby RPG guy. <laughs> right. That's just not realistic. Of all the One, of all the dead end, or not dead end, I mean, theoretically, it's great. But of all the yeah. artistic fields you could sort of try to jump into and make money off of, that's a very dangerous Ooh, yeah. to attempt. I don't know if anybody's doing it. Maybe maybe there are some people who do it, but... And it's sort of the economics of the RPG field. If you're trying to be a professional, you know game designer, supplement writer, adventure creator. It's people like me who are fucking you. Because I'll just pit out an adventure quality. Yeah. I'm seeing people point that and it makes it hard to survive in that field paradoxically because it's such a big hobby. Because there's so many hobbyists with good ideas in it. 
Yeah, it's it's a small market, but it's hyper competitive at the same time, which is like the uh, the definition of like do not attempt to make a living there. <laughs> yeah. Like it's kind of like people say about like restaurants. Like opening up a restaurant yeah. is like you're not going to make that much profit, and there's a, a a thousand other businesses in driving distance that are doing the same thing. Like it's just not what you want to do as a, you know trying to make a living off of. But the for what it's worth, you know. You don't need to invest much to do a tabletop game either, so. I mean, on this, I find, uh, man, something in the past year, I've been really trying to learn a lot more about layout and how to make all that look good, because I can't, uh, I'm not gonna hire a layout guy, because I'm naturally kind of stingy. Oh, yeah. And then, on this, I had pointed out the pictures in it are super amateur, and then gradually, the adventure because I was learning how to draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. You do it yourself, you get better at it, and thankfully, yeah. you know, you're aiming it also at other people who are probably not, they, they don't require the, the polish because it's not that kind of mainstream thing anyway. It's a, it's a weird hobby yeah. for weird it's hobbyists like. It's a weird hobbyist product, so it's something people, I feel like, you know, I just think about the kind of person who's going to stumble upon a self-published D&D product is the kind of person who is already seeing self-published and hobbyist products. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine them come by and be like, oh, no, this is not up to my standards. I can't, (laughs) I can't, I need professional artwork in mind before I do something. It's like, that's, that would be a weird person to, simultaneously be into indie hobbyist <laughs> modules and still be that uh, judgmental about it. But it sounds like you got all the the real important stuff, which is the actual adventure, the actual design, and what players will get out of it. That's top tier. So, I mean, that's really what you're going to get judged on, I would think. Well, we, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we're, we'll have you back on again sometime, and we'll talk about the reception of this release, uh, what you've been doing to promote it, whether you have uh, changes you want to make to it afterwards, all sorts of stuff like that. I'm, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about, and I want to know what the next project is you do after this as well. So thank you for coming on, and uh, we'll see everybody next time.